Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about abuse, defining our terms, and coming to grips with not knowing. But before we jump into the content for today, I want to remind you of a few things happening here at PeaceWorks. The first, as always, is our online membership site, PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership for people helpers, and it is a fabulous resource, and we would love for you to be a part of that. If you'd like to learn more about PeaceWorks University, if you find uh, what you're hearing here on the podcast to be helpful, PeaceWorks University is for you. It has a, a large collection of resources, gospel-centered resources on domestic violence prevention and intervention. You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. Also, I want to remind you and invite you to our upcoming conference, our first ever PeaceWorks conference. It's called PeaceWorks Live, and it takes place September uh, 25th and 26th of 2020. And you can find out information on the conference uh, at chrismoles.org. PeaceWorks Live will feature four plenary sessions by myself, a survivor story that you're going to want to hear as well as bonus sessions from Joy Forrest, Greg Wilson, Darby Strickland. Uh, It's going to be a great, great event, and you can find out more at chrismoles.org. All right, let's jump into today's content. We're talking a little bit about uh, something that I encounter within my work in biblical counseling, and that is a, a, um, a need, like a real desire to define our terms. In fact, one of the the things that I come across quite a bit as I'm interacting with biblical counselors and biblical counseling events is just almost insistence uh, to define terms. What is abuse? What is domestic abuse? And there is a seemingly desire to sum it up in a few concise words. Now, I admire the biblical counseling movement for the way in which they use language. It's one of the reasons why I'm in the movement. I think words are important, and I think the way we use words are important. However, in this work, I think we can get hung up on trying to find the magic formula, the sequence of words that makes abuse clear and predictable, as opposed to using terms to help us understand the construct that is domestic abuse. I say construct because domestic abuse is really uh, about a multiplicity of things that when brought together can be identified. Uh, But one of the dangers is that we often want a singular event, a singular behavior, a singular incident to help us understand, is it abuse? Well, I think what's most helpful or more helpful is to understand the dynamics and impact of abuse, something that you've heard me talk about on numerous occasions. Let me try to lay that out by offering for you, believe it or not, the definition that I use uh, in my book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse. 
I know I've just talked about in so many words that you can't properly or effectively define abuse, and yet I try to offer a definition uh, as a springboard, as a launching pad to discussion. And here's the definition that I use in the book. Domestic abuse is an abuse of power manifested in selfishly motivated patterns of behavior intended to exercise or maintain control over one's partner. Let me break that down real quickly and why I think it's important that those elements exist when we're trying to define domestic abuse. As I said earlier, one of the things that I think one of the areas in which I think we as biblical counselors get hung up is that we again are looking for incidents. We'd like to, I think, present the incident to the formula, to the standard, and say, is this abuse? Is this abuse? Is this abuse? With the standard, whatever that is, a written definition, a person, um, a, a formula, to be able to take that standard, apply it, and say yes or no. Unfortunately, that's not really how this works, because abuse is such a um, a hidden problem. It's such a broad problem. Uh, I think it's important that we understand the basic components so that we can best identify uh, what we're looking at. Uh, the reason why I start with an abuse of power is because I think that's one of the key elements to understanding domestic abuse. I begin my definition with the phrase, an abuse of power. What I'm assuming when it comes to abusive relationships is that one person has power that another doesn't possess. Now, I know there are some who push back against that. And I think the danger of the incident-driven or behavior-driven understanding of abuse is that we end up mutualizing behavior that does not have the same weight. Let me try to illustrate that. Uh, When we talk about child abuse, it's very clear in just our statement alone that we are referring to an individual who is a caretaker, guardian, or an adult, someone with a certain level of agency using power to control or harm a child. When we say child abuse, we really don't speak of children abusing their parents. Now, can that happen? Certainly. I think the conditions have to be a certain way. Uh, Let's give a good example. What if uh, you're a teenage boy and you're living with a single mom who's physically disabled? Do you have the potential to abuse a level of power? There's no doubt. What if you're an adult child caring for your aging parents? Well, certainly. What if you're a six-year-old child who out of frustration or anger strikes your mom. Is that child abuse because a child's involved? No, power is important. That's what I'm getting at. When it comes to abuse, power puts things in perspective. It's important that we understand who in the relationship holds what power. Now, I know that intimate partner relationships are very different. There can be a great deal of equality and mutuality and reciprocity. But in terms of domestic abuse, normally what's happening is one person is using an element of power or privilege or position to harm another. That's why, in my opinion, uh, men are much more likely to violate their intimate partners than women. Sometimes people will say that I claim that women are not abusive or sinful. That's not true. Uh, especially in areas of, say, child abuse or elder abuse or 
uh, caretaker take advantage or sexual assault of a minor, women um, in that regard have a level of power. That's why power is so important and why I begin my definition with an abuse of power. That's where abuse starts, with someone using power to control. Next, I say, through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior. I like to really hone in on the aspect of pride because I believe that the heart of abuse flows out of pride. And it begins with this selfish, self-centered understanding. Is it any wonder that so many in our culture use the term narcissistic to refer to abusive people? And while I don't have time to go into my trouble, my struggles with narcissism as a diagnostic tool used almost exclusively for abuse, I think that's somewhat unwise. I will say that it makes sense why people would make the connection. Why? Because at the heart of abuse is pride, self-centeredness, selfishness. It is about the person in power, controlling the person with less power, less position, or less privilege. Uh, In that other part of the central piece of my definition is the idea of uh, patterns of behavior. The patterns are selfish, the patterns are self-centered, the patterns are controlling, but they are a pattern. Yes, I do believe that legally, and if we had uh, some of our law enforcement friends or lawyer friends or advocate friends on the line, Uh, talking with them instead of me just talking to a microphone, they could tell you that, you know, it is illegal to do certain things. It can be considered a domestic event, even if it's an isolated event. However, domestic abuse is rarely an isolated event. In fact, the hallmark of abuse, in particular domestic abuse, is the pattern of control. And so what you have is an individual who has some level of position, power, authority, privilege, using that to apply pressure to their partner, to overwhelm or control their partner. This is not normally an isolated incident and will be connected by the common thread of control. So imagine um, we're, we're talking about abuse and we get caught in the trap of defining abuse by behavior alone. Do you see the problem, the dilemma with that? Well, one is you're, you're looking at behaviors that have to meet a certain criteria. And so for that, in that regard, um, abuse is going to have to be pretty intense. It's going to have to be pretty severe for an individual to acknowledge it as abusive. Uh, on the other hand, without the connectivity of the pattern, less severe aspects of power and control can be overlooked or rejected altogether. And probably the greatest danger is that of a victim retaliating, that being seen as the primary incident where the perpetrator's years of abusive patterns, again, are overlooked. Patterns are important. And so when we talk about things like emotional abuse, psychological abuse, mental abuse, and so on, it's not to create new categories that are distinct uh, from the construct. So I really want to lay this out because I think what ends up happening sometimes, this is again appealing to my biblical counseling friends, uh, of which I am a, a major part of that movement, 
is I think sometimes we would love to have a, you know, let's say we were planning a conference on abuse. We would want somebody to talk about physical abuse and someone to talk about emotional abuse and someone to talk about mental abuse as if they're separate things. But they are merely separate categories to help us understand the construct, right? So the overarching principle is someone's abusing power. They're doing it in a multiplicity of ways, Uh, whether that is passive, aggressive, or a combination of both. Uh, it is a the pattern that we're looking for. If we get caught up in the uh, the categories without connecting those dots, uh, then we can really miss the point of categorizing in the first place, which is to identify that pattern. Well, let's go to the last piece. So in my brief definition, we're talking about an abuse of power, m- motivated, um, you know, by selfishly selfishly motivated patterns of behavior, right? intended to exercise or maintain control. So the last piece of the puzzle is that this pride of, of abuse, this heart of abuse that's built on pride, that's used by somebody in power, is to control. The purpose is to control. Uh, usually when I'm talking about control, I'm speaking of controlling people, outcomes, circumstances, and so there's this idea of wanting to maintain or manipulate one's environment. That's where we get the word coercion. So when we're talking about coercion and control, it implies a few things. One is that desire for another to yield to the one in power, right? So there is a demonstrative effort to get the person who's victimized to yield, to give in, to be subordinate to. Uh, But at the same time, we're talking about coercion, there is the application or threat of force. And that's another area where I think we need to grow as counselors is distinguishing between the use of force and the threat of force and how they both carry weight and significance. So we, we see this all the time in like an international scale when a president or a prime minister threatens the use of force in order to put an end to some conflict or to mitigate a situation. We see it as peacemaking, but really, I mean, honestly, what it is, is threats. And in interpersonal relationships, threats will never accomplish true peace. It will not bring about relational peace. It will only continue to cultivate fear. And that's really the end result or the byproduct of this continual coercion, which is the threat of force, right, in order to produce fear that motivates one to behave a certain way. So that's one of the areas where when we don't see the construct, when we haven't built abuse as a construct, but we only we say things like, well, it, was, it wasn't physical, it was only emotional. One of the things we're doing is we are relieving some of the weight off of emotional abuse, even though that emotionally abusive tactic may be just as effective as physical assault and is uh, provides more um, significance because the abuser is not going to be held accountable for saying hurtful things in the same way that uh, they are going to be held accountable for physically harming somebody.
So again, it's, it's imperative on us to see abuse as a construct uh, with those patterns of behavior as opposed to the incidents uh, of behavior and to recognize the effects or the impact. So that's one of the reasons why when I'm training biblical counselors, when I'm training uh, individuals, I like to start with the dynamics and the impact of abuse. Dynamics being an understanding of abusive relationships and the keys and the central themes that are involved in that, and then the impact being the effects that it's having on a particular victim. One of the mistakes that we've made again is trying to uniformly identify the effects of abuse, but the impact of abuse is not uniform. Not every victim's story is the same. Not every outcome is the same. Not every impact is the same. While the dynamics will contain a lot of overlap, uh, the impact is to be evaluated in each individual case. You'll see consistency, you'll see things that are similar, but it's important that we get case-wise, right, as opposed to um, subject-specific. So let me, let me unpack that real quick and then we'll land the plane. When it comes to cases of abuse, we should be calling each other as biblical counselors to get case-wise by engaging in the process. And the temptation for us, I believe, is to get subject-specific, meaning we want to address the problem, we want to come up with the solution, we want to offer that application of the solution to everybody, and then we want to move on to the next issue. Right, So here is abuse, here is how you address abuse with the Bible, here is how you provide healing and redemption in the process, now let's move on to anxiety or depression or what have you. And my suggestion is when it comes to people being sinned against in a specific way like this, we need to be more case-wise by getting involved in individual cases managing those cases well, and learning and growing in that respect so that it's not a formula that we're applying, right? It's wisdom that we're applying. Because again, each case is different and each outcome will be distinct. Well, I hope that was helpful walking through just kind of a brief understanding of defining the problem. I want to bring hope to uh, the people that we talk to here at the PeaceWorks podcast, in particular biblical counselors, I love you. I support you. We're excited about resources that we're attempting to produce that's going to help the biblical counseling movement uh, do this better. And uh, so my hope is that uh, conversations like this will help you apply the scriptures even better in case-specific ways. Uh, one last reminder before we wrap up for today that PeaceWorks Live is coming up at the end of September. We would love for you to join us at this conference. It's the first time we've ever done this. Uh, this is something that you as a biblical counselor will want to be a part of. We have uh, myself, Greg Wilson, Joy Forrest, and Darby Strickland, all trained biblical counselors coming from different perspectives and organizations to help you apply truth uh, even better in cases of abuse. So please head over to chrismoles.org and sign up for the conference. Get your seat reserved. And until next time, God bless.